A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. It will be as when a man who was going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and scattering and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him in reply, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter. Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have got it back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. At first glance, we might think that the Lord's point in this parable is to encourage a certain work ethic. And there's some truth to that. But we read the Gospel, of course, from maybe our American Protestant-influenced Uh, work ethic society where industriousness is perhaps one of the most revered virtues. Just think of the Proverbs that we hold dear from people like Ben Franklin. The early bird catches the worm, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and rise. In a competitive dog-eat-dog world, everyone is looking for an edge. And that typically comes from outworking the competition, whether that's in work itself or in school or in our uh, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. So one might think, based on kind of our American ethos, that sloth, the subject of our talk tonight, is not a typically American sin. The virtues of diligence and industriousness are deeply ingrained in our kind of Protestant work ethic. We learn as children very early on 
that the way to get ahead, at least for those who don't win the lottery, is by working hard. But is sloth simply laziness? Traditionally, no. Traditionally, sloth has been seen as a sin against charity. It's not merely uh, uh, an unwillingness to work. What is sloth then? Thomas Aquinas, when he talks about sloth, he kind of gives this uh, presentation. He says, a certain order exists among spiritual goods. So there's an order of goods. We think of the good of rest, the good of pleasure, the good of uh, all of these kind of things. And since all the spiritual goods that are in the acts of each virtue are directed to one spiritual good, which is the divine good, about which there is a special virtue, charity. Charity is the opposite of sloth, strictly speaking. There's a virtue by which we know God. Charity, of course, is that virtue by which we know God, love God, and we love our neighbor for God's sake, and we love ourselves for God's sake. And this is a true sharing in the divine good. And it's proper for a virtue to rejoice in its own spiritual good. It belongs especially to charity then to rejoice, to have spiritual joy, which is so proper that we're talking about this today on the fourth Sunday of Lent, in the divine good. Charity should, we should rejoice, moved by charity, in the divine good. Now, sloth, says Thomas, sloth, however you want to say it. I think the Brits say it sloth and the, we say it sloth, um, is exactly the opposite. It's a sorrow about the divine good. It's a sorrow in that which ch- charity rejoices in. A good definition of sloth, then, is sorrow at spiritual joy, spiritual good, Lethargy with regard to spiritual things. In a sense, we might use the words laziness about love. A slothful person looks at the divine good, that which is being offered to him, and says, meh, or no. Why? Perhaps the good seems too distant or too difficult to attain. Perhaps despair has crept in. Now, that type of sloth can take a lot of different forms. It can, of course, take the form of laziness and idleness, or unwillingness to, uh, to work hard, uh, an unwillingness to sacrifice for the good, an unwillingness to do what is necessary to love out of fear or uh, hate or whatever. But it also can take kind of an opposite form, a form which we might see as much more common today amongst many of us, a certain workaholism, certain seeking after things other than God, a burying oneself in the goods of the earth as distractions as sources of rest when the true rest that we desire is in heaven 
an ignorance of the joy of heaven or a refusal of the joy of heaven. Now, it's important to distinguish something here uh, that could be mistaken for sloth, but which is, in fact, very much its opposite, which is leisure. Joseph Pieper is a German um, theologian, philosopher of the 20th century, and he wrote a book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which if you have uh, a philosophical bent, I encourage you to read. It's, it's really good. Um, it's, a, it's a tough read, but it's worth your, your time. And he says that uh, the notion of sloth means that a man does not, in the last resort, give consent of his will to his own being that behind or beneath the dynamic activity of his existence he is still not at one with himself, whereas the medieval writers would have said, face to face with the divine good within him. He is prey to sadness, and that sadness is the tristitia seculi, the sadness of the world of Holy Scripture. He contrasts this with leisure, says, leisure, it must be clearly understood, is a mental and spiritual, spiritual attitude. It's not simply the result of external factors. It's not the inevitable result of spare time, a holiday, a, work, a weekend, or a vacation. It is, in the first place, an attitude of mind, a condition of the soul, and as such, utterly contrary to the ideal of worker in each and every one of those three aspects under which it was analyzed. Work as activity, as toil, and as social function. Leisure is only possible when a man is at one with himself, when he acquiesces in his own being, whereas the essence of sloth is the refusal to acquiesce to one's being. Idleness and the incapacity for leisure, so see those two things, laziness and idleness, and on the other hand, workaholism correspond with one another. So often when we find ourselves kind of lazy, we throw ourselves to some other thing besides prayer or some other thing besides doing that which we were called to do, that which we know uh, is God's invitation to us. Leisure is the contrary of both. And so it's very important as we consider, and we're going to get to this in a second, how to overcome sloth in our lives, that we know that it's not that we can't rest. Right? Sloth is not opposed to true rest, but it's opposed to the false rest we might find in some earthly good. What makes sloth very dangerous? What makes it deadly? What makes it a capital sin? It's grave because it attacks the very life of God that God wishes to give us. It says no to the charity which God wishes to give us. And it tends to reinforce itself, doesn't it, right? You kind of sit there and watch Netflix and you think, well, I should go pray. But I'm pretty comfortable right here and I've got potato chips and all of those things. Got some ice cream, maybe. Okay. But there's an offering. There's an opportunity there. And it attacks those things that keep us in relationship with God. Right? It's specifically 
uh, has something to do in the spiritual tradition with uh, not desiring prayer, right? When we're overcome with sloth, uh, we have this tendency to not even, you know, like, not even want to come into the church, not want to get up, uh, you know, on time to come to mass, or not want to um, come pray, or not want to get up on time so we can pray, and those kind of things, right? And so over time, we lose even the desire for those things because we've given in to the rest, a false type of rest. St. Gregory the Great says that the sluggard, that's his word, he, he likes that word for the slothful person, does not plow because of the cold when he's held back by the torpor of sloth and he fails to do the good he ought to do. The sluggard does not plow owing to the cold when he fears trifling evils that confront him and fails to do the things of the greatest moment, the things the most, that are the most important in the moment. And it's well said, he comments on the proverb, he shall beg in the summer and it shall not be given to him. The man who does not toil in good works now will receive nothing in the summer, that is, when the scorching sun of judgment shall appear. He will beg in vain to enter the kingdom. This is the danger. We don't love God now diligently. We won't love him in eternal life. So what's the contrary virtue? Of course, not merely working harder, not picking up the pace. In fact, Gregory finds uh, the overhastiness and other expression of sloth, that kind of workaholism, for it also does not take joy, true joy, in the spiritual good. It sorrows in resting in the divine good. As the sluggard fails to harvest for not sowing, the workaholic fails to properly consider what to do and when to do it. And usually only when a thing has been done do they realize that they ought not to have done it. No, the true contrary virtue is, as we have said, charity. And we might pay special attention to three aspects of charity. Cultivating diligence, which means delighting in spiritual good, a certain perseverance, a stick to itness, and leisure as forgotten aspects of the love of God and neighbor. As the philosopher Joseph Pieper writes, the contrary of sloth is not the spirit of work in the sense of the work of every day, of earning one's living. It is man's happy and cheerful affirmation of his own being his acquiescence to God, to the world and in God, which is to say, love. Love that certainly brings a freshness and a readiness to work along with it, but that no one with the least experience could conceivably confuse with the tense activity of the fanatical worker. So how do we fight sloth with charity? The first question we need to ask ourselves if we wish to be free from sloth is, do I believe that my life has a definite purpose? And what is it? And, of course, Christianity, we propose a definite answer to this question. The old Baltimore Catechism can help us here. It writes, responding to the question, why did God make me? To know him, to love him, and to serve him in this life, that I might be happy with him in the next and the Catechism of the Catholic Church's first line is, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man 
to make him share in his own blessed life? The answer, friends, is yes. You have a definite purpose. Your purpose is heaven. Have you fallen prey to the lie that God does not want good things for you? That he does not desire rest for you? That he does not desire to fulfill the desires of your hearts? Think of the woman that he met in the gospel a week ago. He thirsts for her heart. So also he thirsts for yours. Now, sometimes we struggle to know what our vocation is, and I'm going to leave that, uh, the question of how to discern vocations for another time. We've talked about that a lot, and many people here are in their vocation already. But regardless of the particular service to which God calls us to combat sloth, it's sufficient to know that we are indeed called to service. Cardinal Newman said, or maybe better put, prayed, God has created me to do him some definite service. He's committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I'm a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments. Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me amongst strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirits sink, hide my future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. Newman's point is that though discerning our vocation is important, we all know whether we've discerned a particular vocation or not that we're called to holiness. We're called to charity. And that holiness is much more important than the particular mode of holiness. To quote Merton, Thomas Merton, I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope to have this desire in everything that I'm doing. To desire to please God, friends. To desire to grow in holiness, you first have to know that you're called to greatness. And then you recognize that that call demands something. This trust is fundamental to fighting sloth. If I entrust myself to the turpitude of my emotions, I will be dragged all over the place. Trust is essential. And then it leads to another aspect of fighting sloth, willing it. Do I want to do the things that we need to do that I need to do to be in right relationship with God? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. But the knowledge that my actions have eternal consequences is the motivation for seeking to follow Christ entirely in word and in action. Thus, of course, to overcome sloth, I must place before my eyes the inestimable joy to which we are all called, expressed so well by the father in the story of the prodigal son, my son, you are with me always. Everything I have is yours. Now, of course, the Christian life is not merely about doing things, but about being something. 
But the way to be something, the way to be a particular way, the way to have courage, for example, is to start doing courageous actions. An analogy can help here a little bit. Um, Kind of think of marriage as the analogy for being a Christian. Being a Christian, says Rebecca DeYoung, is like being married. Both involve accepting a new identity that needs to be lived out day by day for the rest of your life. Maybe some of my fellow young adults, maybe we can ask some of these older uh, people who have been married a long time if that's a true statement. You get married, you are married. You're in the relationship. But even 40 or 50 years later, you have to choose each day to do those things which build that relationship. To say, man, I don't really feel like giving my wife or my husband a kiss today as I leave the house. But I'm going to. I don't really feel like praying. But I'm going to. Because I know that it matters. It is this transformation of our identity which takes place through repeated actions by God's love that a slothful person resists. Our love for God, our choice to be like him, must be lived out over and over and over again, day after day. And this is a beautiful adventure. It's something worth fighting for. And it means, brothers and sisters, that we do have to work hard. We have to work, and we have to work hard to strive for every human excellence and virtue, not striving to be the best absolutely, but to be striving to be the best versions of ourselves, to be saints. Practically, that means looking at the areas of our lives uh, that, are, that are not in conformity with the Lord's commands and saying, what do I need to work on, and making a plan to attack it. We should be especially cognizant as we do this, as we combat sloth, of the corporal and spiritual works of mercy to which Christ has called us in Matthew 25. Think of that. Feeding the poor or feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting those in prison. Um, uh, I don't have them written down right now, but I'm going through them. Praying for the living and the dead, burying the dead, um, admonishing sinner in a kind way, bearing wrongs patiently. These things, these are the tools to go towards heaven. And as we do this, we're going to be tempted to kind of like change our our plan of life over and over and over again. We're going to be tempted to say, well, I, I don't have to do that today. Uh, maybe I should just do this thing. If, I, if I've committed, for example, to 15 minutes of prayer in the morning every day, well, maybe I don't have to do that today. And in that moment, that's when we resist sloth. That's when we persevere, brothers and sisters. The monks, um, the desert fathers, um, they practiced what was known as stabilitas lot. Lochi, which means um, stability of place. And even to this day, the Benedictines, if you go become a Benedictine, you, uh, you commit to being in one monastery, to staying there, 
It's kind of like getting married, right? I'm with you. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. I'm staying, right? To be committed, to say, no, the biggest temptation of sloth is always escapism and despair when we don't feel like being godly or loving anymore, to abandon ship and to run away, to give up. It's that moment, that moment when you can grow against sloth. The greatest remedy is to resist the urge to get up or to get out and instead to stay the course, to stick to your commitments and to persevere. And finally, as we think of charity under those aspects of growing in virtue and uh, a, a certain diligence right there, we have to cultivate true leisure by doing things which really bring us life, things which make us truly human, the work-a-day kind of world, reading, passing time with friends, cooking. Um, these are the things that come to my mind, right? Um, you have yours as well. All good things can be taken up into leisure. But let me make one particular plea. Above all, entering into true leisure, which is necessary to combat sloth, means working to make the liturgy and the Sabbath, the most important parts of our week. Our workaday culture, that's Pieper's word over and over again in his book, has lost the capacity for true leisure because it has lost sight of God. Ironically, as the capacity for true leisure, worship diminishes, simultaneous, work simultaneous loses, simultaneously loses its deepest meaning for man. In our culture, work is about production, about meeting deadlines, developing a plan, showing results, and above all, making something useful. That's the measure of success. John Paul II writes, while none of these things is wrong per se, they each must be recognized not as the end, but as the means. In the final analysis, it is always man who is the purpose of work, whatever work it is that is done by man. By work, man is meant to express his dignity through participating in the creativity of God himself. Work serves man, not the other way around. Simply put then, Sunday, the day of rest, which we're commanded to take by the Lord, should look, should taste, should smell, should sound, and feel different than the rest of the week. And we should make sure that it becomes that. Now you know what kind of things you need to do there. Of course, this is why the, the, our mother, the church, gives us the obligation to come to Mass. She says, enter into the rest of the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. But also, do you take rest in the other aspects of your life? For students, when I was a student, invariably I was doing homework on Sunday night. It's just like the, the, uh, the norm. Or maybe you're catching up on email on Sunday night. And I'm not speaking as one who's uh, unencumbered by this. Right? I carry around an iPhone in my pocket and I'm tempted to look at my email at 9 p.m. on a Sunday night. But is that really in the spirit of leisure to which we're called. Is that where we're called? 
brothers and sisters? I don't think so. To remind us, Sunday is meant to remind us each week that we're not slaves, but we're sons of a good father. And that if we persevere in the end, we will find rest, but not the restless type of rest, but rather that blessed requiem, the rest of the blessed who are not without activity, the rest which we perhaps taste in the refreshment of a cold beer after a long day's work, the rest we have when reading or studying for its own sake, the rest we experience in the possession of beauty, the rest of a soldier who has done his duty well, the rest which we taste in the celebration of the liturgy and which we know most fully in the reception of Holy Communion. The rest will come, and on that moment, the Lord will say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. The book of Genesis comes to a close with the story of Joseph and his brothers. And the engine of the plot, I'm afraid, is envy. Joseph is a man who is the recipient of some fairly extraordinary blessings. But one thing, his father loves him and has given him a coat of many colors. In a world in which you can imagine there weren't a whole lot of colors, certainly not a lot of coats that were filled with many colors, I had that. And he had also from God a most extraordinary gift of interpreting dreams. Dreams which came to him and came to others and his eyes were opened up in a mystic vision and he could tell what they mean and God communicated with Joseph in a special way about the plans of his own providence. In the end, Joseph's interpretation of dreams would save a whole nation from famine and starvation. And Joseph's brothers see the brother's gifts, his coat of many colors, his father's love, his ability to interpret the dream. And you could imagine in an alternate story that this would have filled them with joy, that every time they saw the coat of many colors going by, hanging on Joseph's shoulders, they would have been overjoyed at its color, at its beauty, at their brother's good fortune. After all, he was their brother. You might have imagined that when they saw his gift for interpreting dreams, they would have been filled with wonder. They would have been ecstatic. They would have rejoiced that God could give such things to men, to their brother. But that's not what happened. Envy got into their heart. And envy is a deadly sin, which means it's one of the sins that always causes other sins. And as you read the story, it gets in there, and they see their brother's good fortune, their brother's blessing, and they can't stand it. And the first thing they do is start to mock their brother, to run him down. Here comes the dreamer. God's given their brother an extraordinary prophetic gift, and they ridicule it, and they tear at it. And then they get their opportunity and they're out alone and they're ready to murder their brother. 
because of envy. And Reuben only barely puts them off the course of the murder, so instead they throw him in a pit, and then they sell their brother into slavery, and they lie to their father about their brother's fate. And things have gotten pretty serious, because envy has literally robbed them now of their brother and all his gifts. Envy and sloth are paired together because they're the two deadly sins that, according to St. Thomas, are opposed to charity. Actually, they're directly opposed to joy. Sloth is opposed to joy in our own good. As Father Will was saying, God has offered us such an indescribable gift, and we ought to leap out of the bed in the morning in order to seize it, but instead, sloth gets that sorrow in there, and we say, eh, maybe tomorrow. And envy turns on our brother's good. We see the good things with which God has blessed our brothers and sisters, and we should rejoice in those goods. But when envy worms its way into our hearts, we can't stand it. Can't stand it that anyone else should be good, especially not that they should be better than we are. And so like Joseph's brothers, we run them down, we ridicule, we minimize, And maybe, in the end, we even start to hate. Envy, like all the deadly sins, imitates something of true happiness. In true happiness, there's a great kind of accomplishment. There's the doing of something great. That's true in all all great accomplishments, even in the great accomplishment that is sanctity and salvation. There's the doing of something great. But envy counterfeits that. It mimics that, but it wants to be great, not so much by accomplishing something great, but by tearing down our brothers and sisters, by being the only one great, by being the best. And so it comes to pass that our brother's good, when we see it, becomes not a source of joy for us, but a source of sadness. According to St. Thomas, the daughters of envy, which it starts to breed, are first those sins of speech, When we're caught in the grip of envy, we start to detract from our brother. We start to run him down and ridicule him. Maybe in secret, when anyone mentions how good he is, we can't help but throw out some little criticism or some little barb. Even maybe we finally start to do that in, in public. Even it can lead to a kind of mockery or a kind of spite. And then St. Thomas says envy progresses from there to this kind of paradoxical interior disposition of the heart. We start to sorrow in our neighbor's good and rejoice in our neighbor's harm. Just like Joseph's brothers sorrowed when they saw the coat of many colors and rejoiced when they had the opportunity to sell their brother into slavery. Envy turns us upside down. The things that should make us sad make us happy. The things that should make us happy make us sad until envy's final fruit is born in hatred. Hatred of our brother just because he's blessed by God. It's a bad disease, envy. Just like Joseph's, the story of Joseph's brother shows, it literally will rob us of our brothers. But there are remedies, and so I want to talk a little bit about those remedies tonight. The first remedy for envy when we find it gnawing at us, to realize that envy very often has its kind of roots in a certain insecurity. 
Probably it's like that for Joseph's brothers. Maybe they thought their brother got too much attention from their father with his coat of many colors. Maybe they thought, well, perhaps our father doesn't love us since he seems to love Joseph so much. And we can have that kind of insecurity too. Maybe even we transpose it onto our heavenly father. If he blesses others, does he really love me? If he makes others better than I am, does he really love me? And so the first remedy for envy is to fix in our hearts the unconditional and gratuitous love of God. We do that, brothers and sisters, principally by looking at the cross. For there, on the cross, is the great sign of the love of God for us, for you and me. There on the cross we see a love which was not earned, a grace which was not merited, vast and sovereign, lavish and free. The grace of God reaches out from the cross, not to those who deserved it, but precisely to those who did not deserve it. And we think when we're in the grip of envy that we have to be better than our brother, we have to rise above them in order to merit the love of God, but it's not true. Christ came to call sinners. He gives his love precisely those who don't deserve it, precisely to those who are unworthy. And it's only ever by accepting the gift that we ever become worthy and just as good as God wills us to be. When by contemplation we root the cross of Christ in our heart and the unconditional love of the Father, envy is banished away. We don't have to compete with everyone around us when we know that it's true what St. Paul said, and we can say the same thing. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's the kind of spiritual security that puts envy to flight. The other remedy that I want to recommend for envy this evening is the understanding of and the enjoyment of common goods. You know, there's goods that we can share and goods that we can't share. Classically, when you have a cake, you can't share it. I mean, you can share it, but only by cutting it into pieces. And the more people that you have to share it with, the less cake there is for each one. And so, when it's a matter of cake, everyone is a rival. And the more there are to take the cake, the less there is to go around. And envy, more or less, tends to see every good through that lens. There's only so much cake. And the more cake that anyone else has, the less cake there is for me. And it's a very worldly logic. And it's a logic that's rooted in our materialistic society, for material goods above all are like that. The more people who are sharing them, the less there is to share. But actually, the highest goods and the best goods aren't like that. They're not divided when they're shared. And so, for example, if two friends climb up a mountain in order to see together the view from the top, they don't have to divide the view in half when they get there. And the presence of one's friend at the summit enhances rather than detracts from the good that is shared. And there are other kinds of goods that are like that. It's characteristic of spiritual goods. 
Not just the beauty of the mountain vista, but learning, for example, and knowledge. For when the teacher teaches, he isn't giving any of his knowledge away. There's not less for him to possess when others also come to know it. And a good teacher wants his students to learn what he knows, even wants his students to equal their teacher and surpass him. And the best teacher rejoices because he knows that his work is done when his students don't need him anymore, when they've risen above what he can teach them. And there are other kinds of goods that can only be had by sharing them with others. The good like singing the kind of choral music that we just heard at Vespers is a great human good, but it's a good that no one can have alone. No one person can sing the polyphony. It's a good that we either share with others or don't possess at all. And being a voice in a choir or a piece in the symphony or a soldier in a victorious army, these are the kinds of goods that can only be had by being shared. And goods of friendship and belonging to a family and belonging to a political community and even belonging to the church are this kind of good. A good that doesn't become less the more people share it. When a new child is born into a family, the good of the family is not divided. When new Christians are baptized in a few weeks at Easter, there won't be less of the church for the rest of us to go around. These relational goods, common goods par excellence, are especially the goods to which we have to turn our attention if we want to overcome the spirit of envy. At the last, then, to overcome envy, what we have to do is raise up our vision and look at the heavenly city. Look at the church in heaven. Look at that new Jerusalem that St. John saw up in splendor and see all those different saints together. The goodness of each differs from the good of the others. There's the great doctors of the church up there, like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, towering intellects. And then there's simple St. Therese. And there's St. John Vianney, who struggled to learn his Latin. And there's the missionaries that went to the ends of the earth to undertake great endeavors. And there's other saints who spent their whole lives within a very tiny ambit of space. There are famous saints up there that we know of. And up there, I assure you, there are souls of great holiness that the world does not know and will not know until the last judgment, when God says to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. The virgins and the martyrs, the doctors, the mothers and the fathers, the kings and the peasants, the fishermen, they're all up there. And none of them is jealous of any of the others. And each rejoices in the good of each, for each knows that the good of each is the good of all. And each knows that the church of which they are a part has become richer by the flowering of each saint. And each saint looks up above him and sees all the saints that are holier than he was and rejoices to see their shining star. In heaven, there's no competition. In heaven, there's no envy. And on earth, the more we banish the spirit of envy, the more we will learn to rejoice in common goods and drop the spirit of competition which sets us against everyone we meet. The more we do that, the more heaven is coming down to earth.